Thank you, Jennifer and music team. If you would, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Believe it or not, we are drawing close to the end of this book, the end of this story of the God who saves. Exodus 33, we're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, it's on page 73, so if you don't have uh, your own Bible, please grab the, the black one there in the pew rack. It should be on page 73. Let's give attention to God's holy word. The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are actual people. We're actual people. They're not like bugs or anything. They're people. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said... My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? 
And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's pray. Father of grace and glory, would you give us understanding? Would you help us, even as Moses asked, Lord, would you show us your ways that we may know you? Having found favor in your sight, draw us in that we may continue to find favor in your sight. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, that we may hear and believe and respond to your goodness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Presence. Not presence with a T, but presence with a C-E. To be present with someone. Presence. Face to face. Acceptance. What do those, those words mean to you? To be accepted. To be welcomed. To be approved. What emotions... Do those things bring up in your heart? No doubt, some good and some not so good. You could probably argue that life, human life, is the battle for acceptance. Right? To be welcomed and approved. In one sense, I think that's probably what we're all after. We want to be wanted. We want to be drawn in. We don't try to make things very complicated here. Uh, We pretty much have one message. I'm kind of a one-trick pony. Um, So this this passage really summarizes the, the message that we believe and teach and aim to live and it's all here right in this chapter. And really, I believe this is, this, this is really the everyday story of the Christian life. What we're seeing here is that God himself, his acceptance, his presence, is the greatest gift you can ever receive. God himself is the greatest gift you can ever receive. And so we're going to look at this chapter really from just two points. Sin creates a great divide, creates a gulf. 
And grace is the only thing that can cross it. Sin creates a great divide and grace is the only thing that can cross it. And we're going to unpack both of those. What does, what does sin actually do? You ever thought about that? Like, what is, I'm, we could probably name lots of the effects of our sin. And that term may even be something new to you if you're not familiar, if you haven't been around the church. This idea of sin, uh, something evil, thought said or done that, uh, that goes against God, right? But wh- what does it do? What is its effect? It does make a wreck of things. Uh, it causes fights with the people that we love. It brings heartache and frustration, leads to death, is what the Bible tells us. But why? Why does sin, and all of those different frustrations and heartaches, why does sin do that? I would submit that it's because ultimately our sin causes us to be removed from the presence of God. Because sin creates distance between us and God, separates us from God. It therefore has all of these other effects in our lives. When we are separated from God, right, between us and the source of us, that is God himself. That's what happens in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin and they are rejected. They are sent out of God's presence. It's what happens in Noah's flood. All of humanity, except for one family that finds favor, finds grace, same, same word used here that Moses uses with God, one family uh, in, in God's grace is spared, the rest of humanity is forever separated. Sin separates us from the presence of God. And it's, it's really a logical conclusion if you think about it. We rebel against God. And therefore, we lose his presence. Right? It's fairly simple math. And if you're new to this story, if this is the first part of Exodus you've ever read, let me just kind of update you on what's been happening in this book so far. God rescues his people Israel from Egypt. He does that by crushing the... Egypt is the slave master. He does it by crushing Egypt. He brings his people out... And the whole purpose of the book, the one main idea that we've been driving at all along is that God brings us up out of slavery to bring us into his presence. That's the, that's, that's what, that's the whole purpose of what's been going on. So God carries Israel through the wilderness to this place called Mount Sinai where he reveals himself. He gives them his law. He says, this is what I am like. You are my people. So this is what you will be like. These are the terms on which we live together. And just before this, Neil gave us, uh, Neil preached for us a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and just before this, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he is on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And in that 40 days, he, he alone is in the special presence of God. Now, God's presence on the top of the mountain basically looks like a raging inferno. Okay, so the people can still observe God on the top of the mountain. Moses has been taken into that presence somehow. We don't get a whole lot of detail. But while he's there in the presence of God, God unveils to him plans for this thing called the tabernacle, which is this big, glorious, really nice tent 
that God is going to live in. This tent will be in the middle of the people. It'll be right smack dab in the middle of their camp and all of their tents, all of their tribes will be arranged around it. So at the center of God's people will be God himself. This is how God will live with his people. This is how his people will live and worship with him, right? The sad irony is that while Moses is learning from God how his people are to live and worship him, his people Israel are at the foot of the mountain creating a new God, a false God, and getting ready to move on without him. Right? That's what, that's what Neil preached for us in Exodus 32, that um, the, the episode, the disastrous episode of the golden calf. So even as Moses is learning how God will be present with his people, how his people are to truly worship him, his people are saying, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get going. Let's go ahead and, let's go ahead and turn our backs on the God who brought us thus far. Right? Uh, so now we're beginning to see how that sin, and, and Moses has to go down into the camp. He breaks the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law, because the covenant is broken. So he breaks it, uh, and then they have to deal with the sin in the camp, right? They've got to deal with what's been going on, this worship festival to this golden calf. And now we begin to see, so that's, that's the immediate consequence, but now we begin to, this chapter gives us the long-term consequences, Right now we see how this sin uh, will affect God's relationship with his people. Let's go back to Exodus uh, 33, 1 through 3. The Lord says to Moses, get up. So, so the, the, the language here is very forceful. Up, go up from here. Right. Time to move, Moses. Get on out of here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Even notice the distance in God's words. You have brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then he says something interesting. Go on to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You guys go on to the promised land because I I said I would give it. I will send an angel before you to drive out your enemies. You go on and enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey. Right? VeggieTales said, and it sounds sticky. Um, Right? The idea and the language there is uh, this is a rich land, a choice land, a good land. God says, I promised it to you. I'll go ahead and keep my word. You, I'll send the angel, the conquering angel. He'll defeat your enemies. Go on up into the land. But I'm not going. I can't go with you. Now, let's, let's pause there for a second. What God, what God in essence just told His people is, go on and enjoy my blessings. Go on and enjoy the gifts. But you can't have me. You can have what I give. You can have my blessings, but you can't have me. Now, would that bother you? Would that that really bother you. If God were to say to you, you can have all the gifts, you can have all the stuff I promised, I'll still make sure you get in, I'll defeat your enemies, I just won't be with you. You won't have my presence. Would you be okay with that? How you answer that question, how we answer that question reveals how much we really grasp the Bible's message. Our God's Because I think 
probably in our honest moments we would we would say, okay, right? It doesn't sound so bad, right? You mean I get all the stuff? I can have everything you promise, I just don't have you? Okay, right? Illustrate it this way. Imagine that uh, uh, my my wife and I are planning a we're, we're working on planning a trip to to go to Disney World. Okay, great vacation uh, involves lots of planning ahead of time. Right, you gotta you gotta make all the the reservations, determine which character meals you're going to, where you're gonna stay. You have to take out a second mortgage in order to make all that happen. Right. So you make all those plans, you set aside all the cash necessary, and then two weeks before the trip, uh, Rebecca looks at me and she says, I'm not going. <laughs> Don't worry, I- I'll, st- I'll-, I'll send someone with you. Right, they can they can drive you down there, they can get you in, you know, like it's all still paid for. Uh, we'll make sure that you get settled and you have everything you need, but but I won't be there. Now you begin to see the the essence of what Israel struggled with. Why they heard this as disastrous, a disastrous word, as the bad news of all bad news. See, the people realize, right... I, their, their response, maybe even for the first time in the books, their response is a right response. Look at verse 4. The people heard this disastrous word, this bad news, and they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. Ornaments. What is that? What are we talking about here? These are all, this is the jewelry and the fancy stuff, right? And actually, probably what this was, was the, the stuff that they put on to worship the golden calf. So these would have been these would have been the clothes and the jewelry, the ornaments that they were wearing as part of their worship celebration of this golden calf. But now they're in mourning. They realize they realize what it is that they've done and so they they strip themselves of this, right? These ornaments are a symbol of their idolatry. They are a a visible proof of their sin, a physical reminder of their sin. And so they they take them off and they mourn, right? We used to do this in our, in several cultures still do it, but right when when you grieve the loss of a loved one, uh, used to, right, you would be in mourning. You would wear all black and you would, uh, particularly for widows, right, they would they would wear all black for a certain period of time. And the idea was that Physically outside, you're communicating the grief from inside, right? Uh, it, it would have been inappropriate. Uh, it's, it would be inappropriate to wear a bright colored flamboyant suit to a funeral, right? We want to communicate somberness, darkness, right? Grief. And so, so the people remove all the flashy, fancy stuff that reminds them of their idolatry. And we could just kind of park here for a second and say that that this is probably what true repentance actually looks like. Notice, notice what they don't do, right? When, when Moses brings them this bad news, they don't go, oh man, 
Guess we, guess we messed up there. Moses, you want to ask him if there's anything we can do to make it right? I mean, I hate that we hurt his feelings. Right? They're not indifferent to what God has said. They're grieved by it. They're not... They express repentance, not regret. It's not like they wronged a customer or a client, right? Oh, no, we took too long to cook his meal. Maybe we should give him some free ice cream. Right? That's not, that's not the condition of their hearts. They are grieved to their core, so much so that they, they take off the very things that reminded them of what they had done. This is what repentance looks like there. It grieves, it's, it mourns, it removes those things which remind us of our sin. What are, what are your ornaments? Uh, what are the things that you put on? Or maybe those relics of a time past uh, when you were in your own rebellion and sin. What ornaments do you need to cast aside? What areas do you need to mourn that maybe you haven't mourned? And here's, here's, the, here's the great irony of the whole thing. Why did they create the golden calf in the first place? Why did they do it? Because they wanted a visible presence of God. They wanted God in their midst. Right there with them. A God they could see. And up underneath that, a God that they could manipulate. Right? Because if we make him and then we can see him, then he kind of belongs to us and we get him to do whatever we want to do. But their, God, their goal, their desire was to have God in their presence. And yet, what does it cost them? God in their presence. The very thing they wanted is the very thing they lose. Isn't that true of our sin? That the very thing that that we thirst for and seek for and white-knuckle grip more than anything, it's always the thing that just slips through our fingers. Whether that's approval. We had an acquaintance, a friend uh, at one point. um, Well, just so you're not confused about who that might be. It was not here when we lived in another city. Right? And this guy uh, was so... Desperate to be, uh, to, to have someone as a friend, uh, he would go a little bit too far. Right? Uh, like he would always walk around the neighborhood and just randomly knock on our door. Or other people's or our neighbor's door, right? Just to see if we were home. And then when it was like, hey, what are you guys doing? Right? I was like, uh, well, right now we're doing this and this. Okay, cool. Can I come in? You know, it's like, I know, you, I know we need friends, but you're just trying a little bit too hard, buddy. Um, right? The very thing that we want, we always press it too far. And it's the very thing we end up losing. Sometimes it's the very thing that ends up killing us, even inside. That's the way that sin works. And Augustine, uh, a Christian pastor from the 4th century, put it this way. He said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in in God. Our hearts are restless until they find restless until they find uh, rest in God. So what you and I need more than anything else is the presence and power of God at work in our lives. And the problem is our sin makes that impossible. Our sin causes a breach. 
And it's actually one of the driving questions, if not the driving question of the whole Bible story. If you want to know uh, one way to summarize the whole story of the Bible, how does a holy God live with unholy people? You could summarize it all that way. How does a God, holy God, live with unholy people? That is the question that the Bible drives to answer from Genesis to Revelation. And at least in this passage, we're going to look at how Moses goes about restoring that breach. So sin causes this breach. Now we're going to see how Moses goes about restoring that breach. So sin creates a great divide. Grace is the only thing that can cross it. Where do I get that from? Let's look at verse 12. Um, by the way, that whole, little, that whole little part about the tent of meeting which seems kind of out of place and weird and random. Why is it in there? Well, that goes to show you that, that what God had intended was this tabernacle, this beautiful tent in the middle of God's people where, God, where people could bring their sacrifices, God could meet with the people. But where is the tent of meeting? It's outside the camp, like way outside the camp, right? And now the only person who goes there is Moses. At least the only person who goes there to meet with God is Moses, Right? Moses' relationship with God continues, but it's outside the camp. Right? It's not in the camp where the tabernacle was going to be. It's now outside the camp. And so it's this physical reminder that Israel's sin has separated her from her God. And outside the camp was not where you wanted to be. Outside the camp was where you used the bathroom. Right? Outside the camp was where you burned unclean things. Right? To be outside the camp is to be outside the security and safety. So God removes, He's not in the presence of the people. He's out there and they can just kind of see it at a distance. That's the effect. That's a, that's meant to be kind of a visible reminder of the effect that sin has on God's people. This distance. So, how does Moses go about bridging that gap? How does, how, what does he do? Verse 12, he's talking to the Lord, probably in the tent of meeting. And he says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. Right? You've told me to go, but you haven't told me who's going to go. You've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. That word favor... Uh, can be translated grace. It's the same as the Greek word charis, which is the, which is the word for grace. And so Moses, I want you to notice the basis on which Moses is coming to the Lord. Moses is praying. This, the foundation of his prayer is God's grace. He says, hey, you, you're the one who said, I found favor in your sight. I'm not coming here asking you for anything based on based on my worth or the worth of your people. You're the one who said, I have found favor. I have found grace in your sight. Now, therefore, verse 13, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your ways. What an interesting thing to pray. Moses says, show me now your ways that I may know you. I mean, like, wouldn't be the first thing, I don't know, like, that doesn't seem like the first thing that would come up. Maybe it'd be like, hey, God, could you reconsider going with us? Now, we're going to get there. But isn't it interesting that Moses begins with a deeper relationship? He says, listen, Lord, you said you know my name, 
And I have found favor in your sight. Because of that, because of your grace, will you take me deeper into relationship with you? Show me more of what you're like. Reveal yourself to me so that I can know you. Why does Moses start there? Because that's where the breach is. The breach is in the relationship, right? God distances himself from sin, and that is judgment and mercy, right? Look at, look at why God said he couldn't go up with his people. If he did, he would consume them, devour them, wipe them out, right? That, that if he went in their midst and this happened again, they would be devastated. So God actually distances himself from them in judgment and in mercy, But Moses begins by praying, if I have found favor in your sight, draw me closer in so that I may know you and find grace in your sight. Isn't that interesting? I've already found grace in your sight, but I want to be, I want to know you more and I want to find more grace. Right? Moses' prayer teaches us that grace is not a one-off thing, right? It's not like a presidential pardon, Right, You get a thumbs up or a not guilty and you're good to go. See you later, have fun. Right, But grace is actually this invitation into a continual relationship with the Lord. Grace makes it possible on the front end for God to be close and then it continues. Right, Grace continues all the way through. The whole relationship is of grace. It's not like it stops after justification or salvation, right? But it's actually actually a process of growth into more and more grace. That's how Moses prays. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. That that I would continue to grow in your grace. And then he says this, see too that this nation is your people. So Moses goes from himself now to the people, right? Uh, If I found favor in your sight, oh, and by the way, remember this nation is your people. Right? How does God respond to that? Verse 14. He says, my presence. And this is, this is beautiful. The, the, the word there for presence is literally my face. My face will go with you. And I will give you rest. That was the promise of the land. Rest from enemies. Rest from slavery. A place. A home. My face will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, no doubt, out of relief, then goes on to say, if your face will not go with me, don't even bring us up from here. Right? Do you hear Moses' heart there? It's almost if he's saying, good, because if you weren't going to go with us, it's not even worth leaving. There's no point in going to the promised land without you. I'd rather stay in the desert near this mountain than go any further without you. What does David say in Psalm 27? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? Moses and David understood something about biblical religion. That it is not about the externals, it's not about the stuff, it's not even about all of the different practices, it's ultimately about communion with God himself. John Piper asked this question, Would heaven be heaven without Jesus? Would you still want to go to heaven 
and see all of the people that you are going to see, the long lost relatives, etc., all of the riches and glories that uh, the Bible tells us are there. But if would you still go even if Jesus weren't there? Of course, that's a rhetorical question because the repeated emphasis of the Bible is that heaven is not heaven without God himself. That for all of the other benefits we might notice, God himself is the great treasure of heaven. Look, there, there is, my kids think I'm weird when I say this. Uh, I don't fully even think my wife probably believes it. But like the one person that I enjoy spending time with, like if you ask me like, okay, who's the one person that you want to spend time with? And like, you could do it for weeks and then maybe see another person is my wife, right? Like she really is, and I'm not earning any brownie points here. Like she really is just my favorite person on the planet, okay? Like if, if you want my ideal vacation, um, it's me and her in a car heading to, heading to the mountains, right? Like as long as she's there, it's fine. So I love my wife. I love being in her presence. It's great. Again, I'm not trying to make up for anything, Right? <laughs> But that's a temporary relationship. You know that? And you can, look, take it up with Jesus, don't take it up with me. Right? Jesus said, we won't be married in heaven. You know why? Because we'll be married to Him. Right? That is the key relationship. I love my wife. Deeply. But what will make heaven, heaven, is not that I am reunited with her, because I will not be. What will make heaven, heaven, is that I will be united to my king and I will see him face to face. And then I will know him. Like see his face, like really be in his presence. Not through a mirror dimly now, as Paul says, but we will know fully even as we are fully known. That is the goal of redemption. That we would be fully known by the God who saves us. That is what Moses even here is praying for. The, the promised land is just, a, is just a symbol, it's just a foretaste of the glory that will be. And Moses realizes that the promised land would not be the promised land without the one who promised it. That God is the greatest of all his promises. That at the core of all of God's promises, the land, the people, the enemies gone, all of that, at the core of all that is God's core promise, which is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the reality. That is what we are after. That is the greatest treasure. And the only way that happens is by God showing us his favor. When Moses goes to God and says, please restore your face to us, he doesn't do it based on his own merit. He doesn't even do it based on his own faithfulness. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the Lord and say, hey God, I don't know about you, but I've been a pretty good leader. I have shepherded this people really well. On the basis of that record, would you mind coming back a little bit, right? Can we kind of come off that? This is not a negotiation. Moses is on his face. Saying, Lord, if we have found favor in your sight, please, please restore your presence. And what does God say? Yes. Then it's interesting, he keeps going, and I think um, this, really, this really caught me. Look at uh, verse 16. I'll read verse 15 again. If your presence won't go with me, do not bring us up from here, because... How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? 
Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. What is it that sets God's people apart? It's God. What is it that sets you apart? Like, what are you known for? What would they say about us? What is it? What is it? What is our, what is our reputation? They're Alabama fans. They vote Republican. They live in a nice house. Right? What, what is it that really makes us distinct? For Moses, Moses says, it means nothing if you're not with us. How, how else will the rest of the world know that you have shown us your grace if you don't go with us? If your face isn't with us, we aren't distinct. We're just nice-looking pagans. Right? We look just like the Hittites that you're about to wipe out if you're not with us. We just might have different skin color and a different language. What this tells us is that the most distinctive thing about God's people ought to be God Himself. That He is the one who sets His people apart. It is His grace and mercy and glory at work in our midst that defines who we are. Everything else is preference. Some are good. Some are bad. But is the key identifier of your life God Himself? That's what Moses prays on the basis of. How else will the nations know how else will the other people know who don't know you? How else will they know that we're yours unless you with, you're with us? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That would be a good period on the sentence right there. But Moses goes one step further. Maybe he's... Moved by emotion, not sure, I don't, not even sure why Moses presses in further than he does. But he feels like he's gained a hearing and so he goes a step further and he says, please show me your glory. I want to remind you that Moses has seen more of God's glory than anybody else up to this point. He has met face to face. As we're going to find, you can't actually meet God face to face at this point. Right? God says, you can't see my face. No man can see my face and live. But, God, but Moses has seen more of God's glory than any other human being up to this point. And he wants more. He wants to move deeper. As C.S. Lewis would say, he wants to go further up and further in. Moses says, show me your glory. Now, we're going to... We're going to look at this next week in Exodus 34 is when this moment actually happens. But God tells him how this is going to unfold. Moses says, show me your glory. And here's how God responds. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So Moses asked to see something, God's glory, and what God says, eh, you're going to be shielded from seeing it, but the way that you'll my glory will be revealed is through hearing. It won't be what you see, but what you hear. And what will Moses hear? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
God's glory is revealed in his grace. God's glory is seen by hearing. And what Moses hears is grace. I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim my name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What those words mean is that God has the prerogative, the choice as to whom he will show mercy to and to whom he will not. Now that is a hard truth. And that is a difficult thing. But what is it? what it means is that God is God and we are not. And that the way God reveals his glory is by being God and not by pandering to us. God's glory is revealed in his grace, in the word of his grace. Now, we're going to hear more about that next week in Exodus 34. But I want to take you forward into the New Testament And remind you that uh, Moses was actually not the last person and the Israelites were not the last people to see a vision of God. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Excuse me, John 1, 14 through 18. John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, Among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory like the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That what whatever Moses saw on the top of that mountain while he was hidden in the cleft of the rock was nothing compared to what those first eyewitnesses saw when Jesus walked the earth. John says that Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. Grace upon grace. That in His face... He is the one who has made the Father known, made Him plain. Later on in John 14, as Jesus' disciples are wrestling with Jesus' departure, Jesus is about to be arrested, one of His friends, Philip, says this. Uh, Jesus is trying to comfort them and Philip says, uh, Lord, just show us the Father. Just show us God and it'll be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, don't you know me? To have seen me is to see the Father. If you want to be accepted, if you want to be drawn in, if you want to know the presence and face of God, don't look for it anywhere else but in Jesus. He is the one who has made the Father known. He is the full revelation of God's grace and truth and glory. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You show mercy, that You are a God who shows favor to people who run, to people who rebel, to people who have caused a great divide. Lord, 
you bridge that divide and you have done it ultimately in the Lord Jesus. That He has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. That's not some uh, ridiculous promise of wealth or health. An abundant life is a life full of you. In your face forever. So that we can say like David, one thing uh, have I asked the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh God, would you make that our prayer? We pray that because of what Jesus has done. Because he has come revealing you. Lord, would you make, uh, if, if our hearts don't know you yet. Even if we are those who say, ah, I can take or leave God, but I sure would like His blessings. Would you cause us to see, Lord God, that you are the greatest treasure we can ever receive. And you are the one who gives it. And that when we have it, we need nothing else. When we have you, we need nothing else. That's what you've done for us in Christ. Help us to believe it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.